So during this talk, it would be good for you to um, practice being in your body, staying connected to your breath, and letting the words come to you rather than dropping your body, connection to your body, connection to your breath, and bringing your attention out and trying to place it on me. So it's a practice. It's a practice to kind of settle into your body, treat it like you would a sitting meditation, but there's the, uh, the addition of having um, guidance offered and a talk given so that you're listening from within your body. You're listening with a connection to the breath, Start with a line from the Dhammapada. First, can everybody hear me in the back? Is it loud? Okay. A line from the Dhammapada. The mind, hard to control, flighty, alighting where it wishes. One does well to tame. The disciplined mind brings happiness. And you all stand a good chance to understand that after many days of practice, how flighty the mind is, um, how drawn into its own creativity and worries and plans and its own uh, agenda, um, constantly leaving a place like a safe haven in your breath or your body. And it can go anywhere. It's actually kind of uh, fun. You can almost sit back and eat popcorn and see where the mind's going to go next because it can go infinitely to the past, infinitely to the future. And you've been experiencing this, but you've also been experiencing what it's like to tame the mind, to give it a place to rest, give it a place to come back to, and be more than on a mindfulness retreat or a Vipassana retreat. You really are taming this quality to not be so flighty, to not uh, be so drawn into um, this thought and that what it's like to actually uh, develop steadiness of attention. And we have windows that open up around steadiness. Windows of samadhi open up, the conditions shift, and we find it relatively easy to be with one breath, several breaths, ten breaths, for sometimes minutes at a time, longer than that, where it's quite easy to be present. When you find it easy to be present, you should take note that in that time, that's what samadhi feels like. There's a ease of presence. There's a steadiness of presence. You've asked the mind to stay in one place, and it has. It stayed with the breath. Something fairly neutral, uh, hopefully mildly pleasant, but tending toward the neutral. And you can stay with it for some period of time. And then conditions shift. And the mind becomes unstable again and wanders and you invite it back. But these windows begin opening up and you don't know when they're going to happen, but more and more they do happen because you're cultivating that capacity to be steady. In 1998, I went to practice in Burma and I'd done several long retreats here in the States And the first place I went to practice was in a monastery that um, was known for its sort of uh, warrior ethic and discipline. And so we got schooled a lot on the the five jhanic factors that Andrew talked about last night, but with a heavy emphasis on the first two, aiming and sustaining. And they're described like the, the two great oxen pulling the cart toward your own enlightenment. So... We were aiming and sustaining all day long. <clears throat> and it was interesting to do that. I was in that first monastery for about six months. And um, it was sort of like going to a gym and only doing pull-ups for, <laughs> for six months. I got very good at aiming and sustaining. And um, other qualities weren't flourishing so much. Um, I developed a tenacity. I developed um, sort of a, a very strong will and I could aim and sustain my attention. Um, but there were other qualities that didn't seem to be flourishing under that. And I, it was mostly a misread on my part. 
listening to the instruction that was being given, but um, it was the tone in the monastery to um, just take things as they were coming, not to intervene too much. Just keep aiming and sustaining your attention on whatever the chosen object was. And then I went to a second monastery after that. <clears throat> and I was actually leaving Burma, but I just thought I would visit this one monastery that had, a part of Burma had just opened up. And uh, I went down there and there weren't so many um, Westerners there. But I uh, just went to see it because they were known to practice uh, concentration practices like this for years on end. And, and one of the first thing I noticed is that people seemed uh, quite happy and quite relaxed. <laughs> and so not knowing any better, I thought, oh, this must be um, uh, maybe a study monastery. I don't think people are meditating because where I come from, we are just we are just bolted down, like the mind bolts down and you walk slow and you definitely don't make eye contact with other people. But everybody that I sort of approached easily, you know, met my eyes, they seemed happy, they seemed relaxed. Um, Like, well, it's very pleasant here. I mean, I'm liking it very much, but uh, they must not practice very much. And then as I was talking to them, I was like, no, they do many hours of practice a day. I was like, oh, really, it doesn't show. (laughs) 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 I, you know, kept that... Wasn't, and I didn't even know it was a judgment. It just sort of seemed like, well, there's just they're very relaxed people, very happy, very content. Um, I don't know where their suffering is. <laughs> I don't know, maybe they're warming up to it. But, um, but then I began to talk to them about what they were practicing and what I had practiced. And I found that their understanding of the mind was really phenomenal. Like, well, how did you get to understand the mind that well? Like, I, I don't quite get your approach. And um, they began telling me about what it's like to do concentration practice, what it's like to do the samatha techniques to make the mind steady. And it sounded so counter to what I'd known at that time. It really was, um, it really was perplexing that uh, happiness was something to be cultivated and tranquility and ease, to not work a lot with uh, body pain, not sort of like burrow your mind into what's uh, most unpleasant. But um, other ways of practicing, and, and so I stayed a couple of weeks there, and kind of I, well. Before I leave, I want to really understand this because it's so different. But it's still within the school Theravada that I've been studying, and so I changed my plans and came back, and began studying uh, samatha meditation, not the vipassana that I had been used to, but samatha meditation um, with the idea that Vipassana was coming, but they first wanted to really train people very deeply in the development of samadhi as a, um, a factor for their awakening, for deeper insight. So that's something I want to go into tonight is um, how to keep inviting your mind into deeper and deeper states of samadhi from whatever you had last week to whatever you might have this week or yesterday versus today. So. Um, and how do we keep doing that? You've actually already heard a lot of the instruction on how to deepen your practice, but um, I'll try to uh, flesh it out a little bit. Joseph Goldstein, who's one of the, um, the uh, more senior and beloved teacher of Western Vipassana, <clears throat> he said the role of samadhi is to gather all the other qualities of mind and settle them on the object of attention. So all the factors of mind play a role in how you come to have an experience. And the role of samadhi is sort of like uh, Philip was saying, hurting the cats, hurting this uh, flighty mind. See if you can gather it and then have them settle in, on one location. Samadhi offers us uh, non-distraction and non-wavering. And when samadhi is strong, the direct experience of it tends to be something peaceful and steady. And you can even have samadhi, when it's developed, be peaceful and steady when you're encountering unpleasant things. And maybe you've already discovered that, that your mind can become stable enough that if something unpleasant like pain in the body arises, it doesn't automatically ruffle the mind. There's a time period where you can still be steady in the contact of unpleasant experiences. 
And in that steadiness, there's a type of peacefulness. Samadhi deepens as we incline our minds towards simplicity over complexity. So that took a whole training in and of itself. Not to have a mind fascinated by all the various things that were going on in it, but to develop samadhi was to actually begin preferring, exploring, cultivating simplicity, being with one object and not uh, with 10,000 objects. What is that like? It develops as we develop uh, a preference for and an orientation, being inclined towards ease over agitation and stress, contentment over dissatisfaction, inclining the mind in these directions, inclining the mind towards contentment, peacefulness. And then a lot of the practice, uh, when, you st- when you settle into it, it's fairly simple. There's just really one object, and there's just one relationship you're trying to develop. And then as Andrea uh, mentioned last night, there are five jhanic factors, the aiming and sustaining, the piti or delight, the sukha or the happy contentedness, and then the uh, ekagata or the uh, one-pointedness. And a lot of time is just spent um, maturing those, maturing those five factors, letting them all be strong and letting them integrate together. And as they strengthen and integrate, your samadhi stabilizes, it deepens, and also it gets sort of longer. So it lasts a little bit longer and the experience of it seems to deepen. And the deepening sense is peacefulness, steadiness, and intimacy with wherever you're putting your attention. A lot of the work early on, the work that we can do is aiming and sustaining. Of the five factors, as was mentioned, you can aim and sustain your mind. So I can ask you to look at anything in the room and you could turn your attention towards it. And for some period of time, you could stay connected to it. So we have some type of agency over these first two, the aiming and sustaining. And then we cultivate them so they get stronger. The other three though are different. The other three, they don't come as easily. And so they take more time to cultivate. They take more time to get stronger. And yet as these other three get stronger, they tend to be what is actually deepening uh, samadhi, what's actually making the samadhi very powerful, not just the strength of aiming, sustaining, as we've been working, but when you really start to open up to piti, when you really start to open up to sukha, and open up to ikagata. And I don't know if it's a personal preference or not, but I have found that of these three, it's the factor of sukha, this sort of sweet, happy contentedness that has had the biggest impact on my practice. So I'm not sure how universal that would be for everybody, but in discovering this factor and cultivating it, uh, it had the biggest impact over um, the happiness in my mind, the settledness of my mind, letting go of things that were really unproductive. And so I saw that happen when PT arose and I saw that happen when Ikagata got strong, but this uh, factor of sukha. So I want to go into that a little bit. It's interesting um, that we're using the breath, mindfulness of breathing. There's a whole um, sutta that goes very carefully through how to do the practice of breathing, of mindfulness of breathing into deep states of concentration. So I thought I would... Um, read that a little bit. Before I do, it's interesting that even after the Buddha's enlightenment, when his job of freeing himself was done, it is said that he still practiced Anapanasati. It was his favorite practice. And so for years he went on teaching, decades he went on teaching. But during the rains retreat, when he would settle down and do his practice, he would do Anapanasati to help his mind uh, concentrate I mean, he's, he was already pretty good at it, but he could deepen and stabilize his mind um, 
with Anapanasati. But <clears throat> again, turning towards this description, and maybe contrasting it just a little bit with what you might have done already on a mindfulness retreat or a Vipassana retreat. So here's the language that describes the practice. I've changed just a teeny bit for gender. Um, here, the quiet practitioner, having gone to the wilderness, foot of a tree, an empty building, sits down with legs crossed and body erect, establishing mindfulness to the forefront. Always attentive, she breathes in with mindfulness and breathes out with mindfulness. And then it goes through these stages of development. Breathing in, she knows I'm breathing in. Breathing in long, she knows I'm breathing in long. Breathing in short, she knows I'm breathing in short. Breathing out um, short, she knows she's breathing out short. Breathing out long, she knows she's breathing out long. She trains herself. Breathing in, I experience the whole body. Breathing out, I experience the whole body. And the fourth training, she trains herself. Breathing in, I calm the body formations. Breathing out, I calm the body formations. And already in this, um, it's not much instruction, but it starts to get into something that I wasn't doing in the first monastery. I was just aiming and sustaining to stay in contact with my experience. But you start to hear in that fourth training, calming the body, intentionally inviting the body to be more at ease. And I think in that first monastery, I tried to sit comfortably, but I didn't spend much time welcoming the body to be more still, welcoming the body to be more calm. And I, I was still, but there's a sense of actually calming the body, actually bringing it to a more peaceful state. And then the training goes on, and this is definitely something I wasn't doing in the, second in the first monastery, but I began doing in the second. He trains himself, I will breathe in experiencing joy. He trains himself, I will breathe out experiencing joy. And then you can just pause right there and make that a day of practice. Make that a week of practice. You know you're intimate with your breath. You feel it coming in, going out. You know the difference between a short breath and a long breath. You've invited your body to be calm. And then while you're breathing, see if you can experience joy. And that, uh, that was something I wasn't doing in that first monastery. I took what came. That's sort of the Vipassana. If you're angry, be angry. If you're unhappy, unhappy. If you're bored, be bored. Just take what you get. And that's freedom. <laughs> Or, or type of freedom, where you can just meet any experience as it is without reactivity. But here you begin actually cultivating joy in the mind. If it hasn't arisen, what would it take? How could you cultivate joy while you're sitting there breathing? And so in the second monastery, because they were pointing my attention here, like, okay, let's do that. Let's try that. What does breathing in, experiencing joy feel like? Well, see, if you're not feeling a lot of joy in that moment, you might have to make some adjustments. You might have to reflect a little bit. You might have to prime a little more joy than might arise because you weren't looking for it. But you get just a tiny bit of reflection and you think, you know, this moment is kind of uh, peaceful compared to being stuck in traffic and late for a meeting. So comparatively, this is really the lovely. It's lovely to sit here, breathing in, healthy enough body. It's kind of a miracle that um, I can breathe and my body takes care of itself. And those little reflections suddenly, it's like, yeah, right on. Okay, here I am. I'm breathing and it's joyful. This is wonderful. And all of a sudden, and I'm looking around like, is this okay? Is this, <laughs> like I seem to be getting away from suffering by doing this. And um, I wasn't sure if it was the, you know, the remedial school, but um, they were encouraging me, and so I had faith in what they were asking. And I began, um, you can't force it. You can't say, I will now feel joy and expect that joy will come. But you can begin while you're practicing saying, is there a block to joy? Is there a way I'm approaching practice right now that's actually not allowing joy to come? And can I shift my attitude 
so that joy is more possible. And what I began to notice is that a certain work ethic was blocking joy. I was locking in, trying to be a good monk and live up to certain standards. And that whole approach had made me sort of tight, diligent, good work ethic, but it wasn't really allowing for much ease or joy to arise. And so that was a, that was a whole development there to begin letting more joy arise, to welcome joy in the practice. And then there were days where uh, um, it would be too hot, there'd be days when my body was uncomfortable, and it was very hard to feel joy. So it wasn't, I got it and then I moved on. But I began to see the importance of joy. I began to see the way my mind would soften, the way my body would soften. Not so many hindrances were arising. I didn't wish I were elsewhere because the practice was joyful and it felt good to be there. It was reinforcing. Taking this further, he trains himself, I will breathe in experiencing pleasure and I will breathe out experiencing pleasure. And this is actually, the pleasure here is the word sukha. And so not just the joyfulness, but what about your experience actually is pleasant? You can kind of prime yourself into a joyous state but then you begin looking. Here in my body, yes, there are aches and pains. Yes, there are neutral experiences. But if there's anything happening in my body that's pleasurable while I'm breathing, and can I add that to be central to my experience? Is there anything happening in my mind that's pleasant? A sense of ease, a sense of joy, a sense of patience, a sense of inspiration. Where in this experience is there pleasure? And it's almost, you know, um, Compared to the first monastery, it really felt like uh, I was sneaking chocolates or something. <laughs> that I was willing to um, look for it, and I was being encouraged to notice it, build a relationship to a joyful spirit, and finding pleasure in my experience. In order to really encourage this, I began to shift again my practice so that there would be more pleasure available. And in this monastery, they said, don't sit with pain. Uh, pain too long is not productive. So I would come to standing if there was a lot of pain. And I would sit in the ways that um, help my body be more at ease, my mind be more at ease. Then it turns in this progression, there are actually 16 stages here. It turns in this progression and it says, I will experience my mental formations. So you have your breath, you find it joyful, you're looking for the pleasure in the experience, you sort of settle in. And from there you begin to investigate what's happening in my mind. What's the quality of my mind right now? What are the qualities? Is there patience or impatience? Is there irritation? Is there peacefulness? So you're just experiencing at this stage, just getting a sense of, there's a basic joy, but is there a little bit of irritation? Is there a little bit of fatigue? So you begin investigating this. And then once you know them, once you know what's actually happening moment by moment in your mind, the next stage says, breathing in, I calm my mental formations. Breathing out, I calm my mental formations. So first you do a little survey of what's happening, and then you invite whatever's happening to be more calm. If you're excited, you welcome it to be a little more tranquil. If you're angry, you see if you can let go of that anger, invite it to be a little more calm. So knowing the mental states and then inviting them into calm. This is a lot more cultivation. This is a lot more um, stages of progression to begin intervening in skillful ways to cultivate joy and peace and relaxation. Whereas in that first monastery, again, I was just taking what I got with the sense that over time that would be liberating. And I believe it is. But there's something to cultivating this, uh, the samadhi, cultivating a happy, peaceful, uh, stable mind um, along the path. It goes on to say you can, uh, in other stages of this, um, how do you please and satisfy the mind while you're practicing? How do you concentrate the mind? And then <clears throat> one of the last ones I'll share here is uh, how do you help the mind with release? How do you help the mind with all that it's 
preoccupied with and holding on to and concerned with that is limiting the availability of the full of your mind to rest in one place because we all have uh, suitcases under the bed you know we all have things that we've put aside for the moment so we could do this we could practice but we really haven't let go of them we're just temporarily letting go of them to make room for this retreat but how do you do a, a, a deeper letting go even if it's temporary letting go on another level so that that part of your mind isn't occupied with um, some dormant list of responsibilities that's somewhat occupying you, but you've kind of pushed it to the back. So over time, with experience, and you're now several days into it, um, if this is your first retreat, and those people who are returning, I've already heard from some of you that, that there's just more to learn. There's more to learn about this process of developing samadhi through mindfulness of breathing. And then later on in the retreat, we'll talk about how to then use this for the larger endeavor of uh, waking up on the Eightfold Path and how it supports Vipassana. But there's a whole range of skill and experience and wisdom that's being cultivated just in this one art of inviting the mind into samadhi. So coming in to maybe the more the felt sense of, um, of piti and sukha and ikagata, um, for me, you know, it's helpful maybe if we all talk about this from our perspectives, it might help you tune into what's already happened um, for you. You've actually already experienced these, but maybe you don't know it yet. PT for me, <clears throat> a, crude, a crude description of PT is what happens when I drink caffeine. So I go from a sleepy mind and I a little bit of caffeine and my mind brightens. There's a little more energy available. It gets a little clearer. It gets a little more interested in what's happening. So PT, when it comes into the mind, tends to dispel um, a slight sleepiness, a slight fogginess, um, a low energy state. PT comes in and it brings with it a bubbling energy. You can feel it sometimes bubbling up in the body and you can feel it bubbling up in the mind. So <clears throat> this is a great benefit to samadhi because it, it, uh, when the PT factor arises, you go from doing a lot of work through aiming and sustaining and suddenly this uh, natural, natural caffeinated state begins to bubble up and you find the breath very interesting. The body becomes a little lighter. There's a little more energy flow where maybe there's things were stagnant before. So anytime that you have gone from doing the practice but having it feel a little flat, and then sometime later, all of a sudden it's actually kind of interesting that you can breathe and maybe you're, uh, you're enjoying it and maybe you find it kind of fascinating and delightful. These are the words that sometimes get associated with PT in the mind. A sense of delight, a sense of, um, of wonder opening up, a sense of having more energy available. And as Andrew was saying, you can also begin to feel PT in the body. You begin to feel uh, the body becoming lighter, more sense of uh, improved circulation in the body when PT arises. The sukha factor, I don't, I haven't often known how to cultivate PT. There are certain practices that have worked for me like Qigong or yoga where I do feel more uh, PT. I don't have to use caffeine. But there's sort of PT comes with a sense of um, finding things interesting. So you can prime a little more PT maybe by reflecting on you're doing the very same practice that the Buddha did. If you feel an in-breath, he felt an in-breath. If you feel an out-breath, he felt an out-breath. So just that reflection might make it a little more interesting that you're sharing that practice with him. So that's a way to encourage uh, mental PT to arise. The practice of sukha, <clears throat> um, the feeling for me when sukha is strong, and again, the image that Andrew used last night was fantastic, of um, drinking the cool water and sitting under a tree. So 
coming in and it's this happy contentedness. And that is actually something I can cultivate. I can cultivate that with reflection. I can cultivate that by shifting my attitude. So I can settle back and say, what an amazing room. Really all the wood that's been used and the acoustics and we sit here and people have sat here now doing meditation, just reflecting a little bit. And I settle in and it's like, this is a good moment. This is a good moment to be here. I'm quite glad I'm here. And in that settling in and feeling fortunate to be here, happy to be here, the mind and the body relax, and then you get the benefit of the sukha, the ease and the beauty it brings to the mind, but also the alleviation of wishing you were elsewhere or um, feeling some kind of grumbling in the mind about the way things are. So a little bit of reflection and then dropping into a, st- a sense of contentment. And then once you know what contentment feels like, the visceral feeling of contentment, then you it's like a magnetizing a compass needle and letting it point north. You let your mind and heart remember contentment and not stray from contentment. Can you let a breath be fully contenting? Can you let that be a perfect moment of your life with nothing missing, nothing lacking. I sat there and I breathed and it was one of the most full moments I've ever had, most satisfying. Not because it was exciting and entertaining, it just was so fulfilling, so relaxing to have that breath come in and out. And the way the mind relaxes and feels happy and glad and settled, that's the arising of sukha. Sometimes for me, it's actually uh, consciously connecting to beauty, especially natural beauty, that will bring that sukha factor in if it feels like it's a little flat. So sitting, walking out, and really taking in the view, taking in this landscape, walking up into the woods and connecting with the trees and the path, you know, seeing the lizard on the ground, appreciating them. Appreciating the beauty and settling in will make the mind happy it's here the basic senses, like this is a good place to be. And being a good place to be, the mind feels more content. The more the mind is content, the less hindered it will be, the less the hindrances will have their way with it. So I've spent a lot of time actually trying to explore and cultivate sukha. And it has been um, wonderful because if you develop sukha, but you don't necessarily develop much samadhi, great. (laughs) You know, it's a good moment to be in sukha. And maybe your mind was still a little bit adrift, like kelp in the sea, like, yeah, you didn't land with the breath and didn't achieve much, you know, stableness of mind, but you still have sukha. It's the precursor for samadhi, but it's also a nice experience unto itself to have a mind that's in sukha. There's a lot of... um, even though we're not doing vipassana, even though we're not doing mindfulness, there's so much wisdom, there's so much insight that can come through this practice. It's so orienting to do this practice that it's not like we're doing uh, the samatha samadhi practice and then it's a whole different thing to do vipassana. There are definitely differences. But you can learn what it's like to be in a mind where it doesn't matter what you're attending there's a basic sense of happiness. There's a basic sense of well-being because the sukha factor is strong. And so almost everything your mind encounters, it's another reason to feel sukha. So you begin to feel what a happy, uncaught, uncraving, unclinging mind is like. You're resting in sukha. So it's a great thing to develop the sukha factor, this happy contentedness. And it's a great support for samadhi, it's a great support for vipassana, for further progress on the path. But it's a beautiful thing to develop um, just for the sense of well-being you get in the moment you develop it. In the Ekagata, the felt sense of this jhanic factor, going through the jhanic factors again, the Ekagata, when it's strong uh, in me, I might be sitting there and I hear the bell ring. <clears throat> Maybe it's the bell right before lunch. And this tiny little voice says, if you don't get up now, you'll be at the end of the line. So 
it's, it's, you know, let's get moving here. That little tiny notion passes through and I just can't be budged. And maybe it's the sukha factor. It feels so good to, you know, be content and lunch isn't that tempting. But when ikakata comes in, it's actually become somewhat difficult to try to pick up another object, another concern, to move to something else. There's this deep, uh, stable um, resting place of the mind. The mind feels more absorbed in what it's doing and less inclined to actually be elsewhere. All the other factors, they're helping the mind be present, but when ikagata is strong, the mind just is present. It's got a flow of experience and it's very, uh, it's very intimate with it very steady with it, so steady that you actually, if you did need to change your, if you did need to get up, you know, you had to ring a bell or some responsibility, you'd almost take three tries to <laughs> get yourself to go in a new direction. That's when ikagata is strong, when it's maybe ikagata is prominent. And then as it mixes, as these factors begin to mix, then they balance each other out. And so the, the lightness of piti can mix with the steadiness of ikagata and you get that steadiness, but also the mind is agile because of the delighted piti in it. But when ikagata is strong, maybe stronger than the other factors, it has this sense of, of resting instability. And it's the sort of primary function is to have one frame that you're resting in. The way to develop ikagata is, <clears throat> is maybe many things, but one of them is an even deeper letting go of the desire to be elsewhere or the promises that something will come elsewhere, that there's a greater joy to be had or something more important than the breath or the present moment. And this is where sukha and ikagata join. So if your mind is happy and content, then you can settle in and be quite stable. You can allow stability to come from this factor, ikagata, um, this one-pointedness, to mix with the sweet contentedness. And there, that's a great combo. That's a great um, stabilizing factor to hold you in the flow of present time experience. Because you're, not, you're so content and happy, there's nothing that you're desiring elsewhere that's going to pull on you. And because of the stability, um, your mind isn't easily taken up to wander. So these, these uh, factors of sukha and ikagata, when they ripen and, and blend, they really start to open up this sense of being fairly absorbed in what you're attending. You can be absorbed in a sunset. You can be absorbed in a breath. You can um, be absorbed in uh, what you're eating. Many of you have already experienced these. And so when we're talking about them, Maybe in their extreme, they might feel like uh, they're foreign experiences. But if you've ever been engrossed in a book and you're reading a book <clears throat> and you can't put it down and there are even impinging responsibilities that are starting to pile up, but you are so enjoying the book and you, the book is a sort of a zone unto itself and it begins to kind of uh, dissipate common reality because you're so drawn into this book so fulfilled by what's happening, so interested with the PT, so, you know, a real page termer. And then there's just something about that type of process of being in the reading mode and your mind gets into that groove and someone actually has to walk up and shake you or like really like call your name loud into your ear to get your attention because you're so engrossed in a book or in music or in sports or in other activities that you've already had. And those moments have already tended to be the ones you would pick out as maybe the best moments of your life, but there was so much contentment and so much presence happening in that activity. What we're doing here, because we're using a fairly neutral object, is that it's not the object that's making that happen so much as it's the development of the mind in relationship to the breath. And then we can point that mind anywhere. If you can be fairly, if you can be you know, deeply content with the simple act of breathing, then turning your mind towards any other activity, you can find that also deeply contenting and worth the full of your attention. And to cultivate 
this sort of one resting place, this one seat, one steady relationship to the breath, you do have to keep letting go, even just temporarily, but fully letting go of everything else that might be tempting. Every other story, every other intrigue, every other problem. So to uh, open up ikagata and make it uh, deep and robust, there's a deep letting go process that has to happen towards other times in your life, other places, other experiences, other desires, other agendas. And this parallels what happens in mindfulness. So as you're strengthening the, the capacity to let go in order to sink into samadhi, that same process of letting go then transfers over when you start doing mindfulness and vipassana work. You've already um, done your work to let go of concerns, to let go of the 10,000 places the mind would rather be, and finding and convincing yourself that the present moment and intimacy with the present moment is so fulfilling that the story that there's someplace else you'd rather be, you can see through it because you've known that when the mind is in the right place, the breath is all you need. And so you just don't buy the story that um, there really is something else better than the breath because you've already seen that the time you've spent that one hour or you know that day or whatever, that's already kind of proven to you. That's really more about the state of your mind than about the object, than about the object of the breath. The development of samadhi is sometimes, you know, it, it can be a little mundane, so it has its challenges. The breath can be a little bit soporific or boring. But in your relationship to it, it's meant to be pleasant, so that at least it's reinforcing. It's meant to be soothing, calming, and pleasant. You actually get to cultivate joy, you get to cultivate pleasure, cultivate states of calm. And in that, you're, like I was just saying, you're uh, reinforcing um, a, a state of relationship to the rest of the world that's very useful when you transfer um, this practice over to mindfulness and vipassana. So this deep letting go. You have to let go of everything in order to absorb into the breath. The breath is so neutral, anything else that's got a little more charge on it is going to keep sneaking your attention. So you have to have this deep surrender, this deep letting go in order to uh, have the breath be that fulfilling. And then as you get into that relationship, it's, it's rewarding, but as you move towards it initially, there's a lot of letting go that has to happen. That practice of letting go translates over into the mindfulness and vipassana. But here you're letting go, is sort of the substitute. Um, my sister had a lot of kids, and so when I would visit, I would learn you can't just take the car keys out of their hand because they'll scream. <laughs> but if you can substitute something for the car keys, then uh, you, you, know, you put the right toy in their hand and they'll let go of the car keys. Um, so with samadhi, you're giving your mind a substitute. It's like, I'm going to take away everything. You're going to let go of everything. And it will be a while before you get this reward of you know, your full liberation. But first you're going to pass through all this suffering. That's a tall order to ask somebody to you know, go through that trajectory. <laughs> but what if a lot of the work was done by taking away our addictions to coffee and our computers and you know, all the complexities of life that we're kind of attached to, and we substitute it. We substitute something that is uh, more mild, but we're doing the work of letting go, doing the work of showing up for the breath. We're doing a lot of that uh, prepping, a lot of that transformation of the mind when we develop samadhi. And then when we go into something that is more challenging, often the Vipassana insights have a challenge to them. The surprising amount of work has already been done. Um, and this is what people report when they add the cultivation of samadhi on their dharma path, that um, there's a, parts of it have, have progressed that were a little bit stalled in just doing the Vipassana because there was a, a slight hardship in that experience. You're learning that um, if you have a good sitting, if you have a sitting that feels like there's a lot of samadhi and you cling to it at all, you suffer. So right there you're learning that 
clinging to experiences that were pleasant uh, just doesn't work. And samadhi, is, it's great, is a much better teacher in a way. You know, sugar is there and you can go get sugar if you plan on, you know, you know where it is, but samadhi actually doesn't come if you're in a craving state or a clinging state. Samadhi is a better teacher, it's a more immediate teacher, that it gets further away the more you crave it. It gets further away the more you cling to it. The mind gets more agitated and won't actually surrender into samadhi. And so you have to prime yourself in relationship to how do you have pleasant experiences, how do you welcome pleasant experiences, and clean up your relationship with craving and clinging, and too much expectations. No expectations, no effort, no samadhi, too much expectation, too much clinging, no samadhi. And then you find this middle ground where you do put in the effort, but you have to clean up your relationship to your motivations and how you're relating to the samadhi. You learn about steady effort because you can't control the mind. You can't make uh, concentration happen. You can't force it to happen. But you can see that with steady cultivation, you actually can increase the likelihood that samadhi comes. And so you learn about steady, persistent effort. At least I did a lot more clearly. I was doing the samatha practices to develop samadhi. I learned I could influence my mind but not control it. In the mindfulness where there's so much um, resting and equanimity towards whatever arises, I just wasn't cultivating certain states like joy or contentment, again. But through the cultivation of samadhi, I learned I could actually cultivate my mind. My mind was sort of like a garden and I could weed out certain things, plant other things, nourish them, and they would grow. And then there'd be all this beautiful um, outcome of cultivating happiness, cultivating joy, cultivating calm. And maybe the um, last thing I'm saying, it's, a, it's sort of a new topic, is that with the opening up of samadhi, with the opening up of happiness and contentment, with the opening up of your energy body, when PT begins to flow, um, sometimes that shakes loose things that have been dormant. And so this process of developing samadhi also is a purifying process. So what will happen, and this happened to me for months and months and months when I was practicing the second monastery, the Pauk monastery, just to give it a name, in Burma, is that I would have sort of steady practice, then there'd be this beautiful opening and I would learn not to cling to it. So the opening would happen, things would shift and the opening would sort of settle down into a more ordinary state. And then all this chaos would ensue. All these hindrances would explode out of nowhere. I would have a very validating experience, be open, feel it. And then this uh, sort of avalanche of doubt would come over me. And it would be very strange, like I just had a validating experience and now I'm seeming to be just tumbling through doubt. I'm tumbling through irritation, tumbling through restlessness, and talking to the other monks and nuns there, um, they would say, yeah, as you, it's sort of, um, as you open up, more can pass through. More that's been stuck in your system can pass through. And so relaxing, opening up, and it's really uh, evening out my effort, not really going for it, and then collapsing and having all this drama unfold, but just being more steady made my opening more steady. And then things would metabolize better if something did get let loose, like some old fear that I didn't know I still was holding on to would activate, but it would begin to kind of move through my mind and out and it wouldn't be so disturbing. So <clears throat> as you begin to awaken up and develop uh, samadhi, you will all go through purification processes. And if they're mild, you might be going through them and it just feels like a flat sit or a flat several sits. But if you really feel that a lot has happened, where um, there's a surprising amount of agitation, you might look at and see if one of the patterns has been earlier in the day or the previous night, there was some type of opening. And then not too soon after, you notice that there's a lot of stuff that got stirred up. And it seems uh, discordant or in the opposite direction. You know, I finally settled in and really loved my breath and all of a sudden there was this upheaval. So that's not going to be true for everybody, but if you've noticed that pattern, 
the way I was advised to, um, to smooth that out was just sort of even out my effort and just sort of keep it really steady. And with that, samadhi would develop, certain things would be released. I would kind of process through them, let go of them, and then they'd sort of wash out of my system and there'd be more room available for more absorption into the breath after the fact. So I even began to like the purification process because I saw that purification process was letting go of some, some stiffness in my back or some heaviness in my limbs that would let go. And then a few days later, when I settled in again and really had another beautiful window open up, it was much broader and deeper. So the purification process, the arising often being displayed as another wave of hindrances is not a setback in your practice, but often it's a progression through a letting go process. Some type of evolution is happening in your body, in your heart, in your mind as you're deepening your samadhi. So just to put that on the table, um, that uh, if that gets, if that gets confusing, that's one possibility that you're going through a purification process, um, and you can check that out with us to see if that's um, if we sense that as well. Maybe the last thing to say <clears throat> before I wrap up is um, there was a nun at this uh, monastery, the Pauk Monastery, and I'd heard about her for a long time before I met her. And she had this incredible reputation of um, being incredibly adept at very deep states of concentration. And finally, this French monk um, worked our schedules so that we could actually uh, be in the same place at the same time. And like all the other people who had been practicing very deep concentration, she was very calm, very pleasant, very uh, joyful, it was very wonderful to be in her company. And I began to notice that was one of the trends of people who had done a lot of concentration work, is that at least at the time they were doing it, if they began to feel this fruition of the sukha and the kagata, the piti coming through, that there was just something um, glowing and peaceful and kind of radiant about them. And so <clears throat> I got a chance to talk with her and uh, I was telling her that in the, I had done a lot of work with Vitaka Ranchara and wasn't really having much piti or sukha arise. And now everybody's talking about it in this monastery, but I just don't know how to cultivate it. And it was actually her who turned my entire practice around. I was ready for it, but when she gave me this advice, she said she doesn't ever do the aiming and sustaining unless there's a basis of happiness and contentment that she'll do aiming sustaining very lightly if her mind feels agitated, because that might help stabilize it. But for her, the development of the sukha and the piti was as important for opening up samadhi for her as was the aiming and sustaining. That all five of these jhana factors um, need to be ripened, they need to be blended so that they, they work well together because we have access to aiming and sustaining, they're the most things we can do, we might overdo them. We might just settle in on the aiming and sustaining. But as I read through in the Anapanasati Sutta, there's a cultivation of joy, there's a cultivation of calmness, there's a cultivation of connection to pleasure, to let sukha arise, to let piti arise. They don't come as quickly or as easily so it's a little bit more of an art form, a little bit more of a, the farming, the garden of your mind. You have to kind of welcome them and cultivate a relationship to contentment and to this inner joy and delight. But they do need priming. They do need some invitation. They need cultivation. And so while you're here doing your very dedicated work of aiming and sustaining, because that's, that's also a basis of concentration, Take time to gaze out the window and see how beautiful it is. And you'll watch your mind soften because you're actually connecting to the beauty. And we have these retreat centers in beautiful places because they have that effect. Um, so walk out in the woods a little bit if that brings you this, this uh, pleasure. 
linger a little bit with a cup of tea and feel that warmth in your hands if that brings you this happy contentedness. Um, Gaze at the deer if you see deer and see if that brings this type of contentedness. And you learn. You learn how to cultivate contentment, interest, along with strengthening, aiming, sustaining, so that you're growing all five of these factors together. And then you see that those factors are what's really dawning into this deepening of samadhi and the lengthening of samadhi. You know, larger windows begin to open when all five of these factors are strong. And possibly the, the last thing uh, I'm going to say is after the rains retreat, <clears throat> um, just want to share this one story. After we had done our three-month intensive at this monastery, um, Monks and nuns and lay people get invited places. So all around the area, there are um, people who haven't been able to make it to the monastery, but they've been sent requests. Please come and visit our village. Please come and visit our monastery and share what you've learned during those three months of practice. And there's beautiful exchange. And so from being very secluded, suddenly we're in trucks and driving all around and meeting people in all these different uh, um, circumstances. So I got to travel with this uh, monk, um, Pauksaida. And as amazing as he was in his secluded, diligent practice, he was so much fun to travel with. He, um, we went to these caves once. This, uh, this person wanted to take us to these very holy caves. And he was, it was like a, being with a five-year-old. He was walking around and, um, and he had a smile on his face. He was looking around and he called me over and he's like, do you have caves like this in America? And I was like, oh yeah, we have caves. Like, it's not quite like this, but like, oh, they're very, very beautiful. I love caves. And he had to see his childlike uh, delight of me in the caves, that, um, that joy he, he carried was another kind of awakening for me that it wasn't, it wasn't all about the first noble truth of suffering that I had probably um, invested too much exploration in, just the hardships of life but that this path has a lot of room for beauty, a lot of room for well-being, not at the end, but actually as part of the path. Part of the path, maybe even fundamental sometimes, is cultivating well-being, cultivating contentment. And it says even the sutta, experiencing joy, experiencing pleasure, as a way of uh, further letting go and priming yourself to uh, um, further awaken presence and through the investigations that come when you can be steady and present with your moment-by-moment experience. So I'll leave you with that. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit for a moment and let the words dissipate and see if we can reconnect to our bodies if we left them during the talk gently guiding our attention back slowly to connect with the body and the breath. as you settle into your breath, settle into your body, see what it's like to begin inviting a sense of happiness that you're sitting here in the room, contentment, ease, and then discover your way into that. Discover how you Guide your own mind, your own body into calm, contentment, being at ease.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.